Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. So when I was in middle school, I started my first small business. The business, uh, it's not weed. I know some of you are thinking that. The long hair probably does that. It's not. It wasn't selling weed. Um, There was too much competition in that field in my middle school, so just... Uh, the business that I actually started in middle school uh, was making and selling mixed CDs for anyone at my school who wanted them. For those in the room who are not an elder millennial like I am and are a little bit younger, uh, CDs were basically like a Spotify playlist, but with way less songs on them. Uh, so I, so like 10, 15 songs max, I would burn these CDs, which is also a very confusing term if you didn't exist in the late 90s, early 2000s. I would make these CDs for people in my school. So they would bring me a list of the songs that they wanted on the CD and $5. Uh, and after a few days, I would bring them the CD with those songs. And I'll be real with you guys. Uh, business was booming at Greer Middle School circa 1999. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty awesome. At least at first, uh, I was one of only a few people in my school who had the ability to make these CDs. And between my parents paying for the CD burner, the blank CDs, and me illegally pirating the music to make the CDs at no cost, uh, I was making just about 100% profit. I mean, no overhead. It was great. It was magical. And eventually, some other people in my grade gained the ability to make CDs as well, and I had more competition, so I had to innovate a little bit. I began designing custom labels to go on the CDs with like the track listing on them. Everything on it was like 90s word art. It was fantastic. Uh, I believe the business term for what I was doing there is market differentiation. Uh, I think that was the idea. But then all of this came to a screeching halt on April 13th in the year 2000. That was the day that the rock band Metallica filed a court case against Napster, one of the most well-known platforms at the time for pirating music. They sued for $10 million, claiming that that was the amount of money they had lost when their newest album was leaked on the Napster platform. Now, Metallica won the court case because there really wasn't even much of a case to be made on the other side. Napster provided a means for people to pirate, or in other words, steal music that they would otherwise have to purchase. And the courts decided that stealing is in fact stealing, whether it's physical property or intellectual property. And stealing is stealing even when you're stealing from someone like Metallica who already sits on millions of dollars. So shortly after Metallica won the court case, Napster was shut down for good, and maybe most significantly in the story, my small business was forced to close its doors due to unforeseen shifts in the economic landscape at the time. But here's where the story gets a little bit interesting, at least I think. Even though Metallica won in court, many people would say they actually lost in the court of public opinion. 
Because as right as they were about claiming that their music had been stolen on the platform, nobody I know of in society at the time was going, wow, Metallica, thank you for setting our society back on the path to the straight and narrow. I'm so glad you restored ethics and morality in our nation through that court case. That wasn't really the public response at all. To most people, at least the people I talked to at the time, I think Metallica came across as a little bit greedy, Bit of a buzzkill, to be honest, to many. Metallica was like the equivalent of the dad coming down to the basement where the teenagers are drinking and just pouring all the alcohol out in the yard out of spite. The near universal response to the court case was, yeah, we know what we were doing was wrong, but who are you to say that, right? That was the general disposition people had. I mean, just because you made the music or something, you think you get rights to it? I mean, that was the response from people in society. And I think that's because something had changed in the public consciousness. A, A shift had occurred where in the minds of many, it was actually worse to stop someone from pirating music than it was to pirate the music in the first place. Pirating music had become so common of a thing at that time for so many people that anyone who tried to stop people from doing it was now seen functionally as the immoral one, at least functionally speaking. The the moral goalposts of the society have been moved at the time. Something that was very clearly wrong was now seen as most people as being right, and people who advocated for what was right were now seen by the majority as being in the wrong. Now for clarity, I don't really have any dog in the fight of pirated music in the year 2024. I have economically recovered from having to close my small business. I'm doing okay. But I bring the story up because I think it shows just how quickly a shift like that one can occur in our society. It shows how rapidly sometimes the moral goalposts of a society can be moved So so I could have referenced any number of other phenomena in what I just mentioned that illustrate the same thing. So the amount of immorality and mudslinging and nastiness that is now seen as normative in the American political process. That'd be another example. The rapid redefinition over the past 15 or 20 years of marriage, sexuality, and gender would be another example. We could reference any number of different topics, but the point would be the same. Things that were once considered right are now commonly seen as wrong, and things that were once considered immoral are now considered by many to be moral imperatives. And the operative force behind that whole dynamic is what the scriptures would call the world. So if you're joining us for the first time this morning, uh, welcome. We kicked off a new teaching series last week about what we called the three enemies of following Jesus, namely the world, the flesh, and the devil. We said that a lot of the Christian life can be seen as a battle against those three opposing forces. So we're taking the month of January as a church to learn more about each of those three enemies discover what their tactics are, how they fight, and then most importantly, learn how to resist them in our lives as followers of Jesus. We believe that learning to do all of that has a tremendous impact on our ability to grow and mature as God's people. So we think it is well worth the time to discuss all of it together. Today, we are talking about the world. 
So let me give you a definition of what we mean by that term, and then I'll show you where we get the definition from in the Bible. So when we talk about the world, at least in this context, we mean something like the value system of our surrounding society, the attitudes and behaviors that our culture tends to celebrate, pursue, and reward. That's what we mean by the world. That's what we mean when we refer to the world. There are certain things that our society as a whole tends to promote and elevate as being good or right, things that they celebrate and encourage and reward participation in. And and at times, some of those things that the world values actually align with the value system of Jesus. Things like truth and integrity and, and, and beauty and justice and kindness all of those things. Some things that our world values actually run parallel to the things we value as followers of Jesus. But to state what should be obvious, other times they don't run parallel at all. They actually run contrary and opposite to our values as followers of Jesus. There are things that we think are wrong and immoral that our society increasingly thinks are right and true. And increasingly, there are things that we think are good and right and true as God's people that our world actually considers wrong and immoral. So just to cite a few examples, the pressure that you feel as a single person to sign up for the dating app that everybody else your age is using and use it in precisely the same way that they are using it, that pressure you feel is the world, the the inclination that you feel as a young professional to pursue an ever higher standard of living month over month simply because that's what your peers at work are doing and it seems compelling to you. That's the world. The discomfort you feel when someone at your job or in one of your classes who doesn't follow Jesus asks you as a follower of Jesus for your opinion on sexuality or gender or marriage or divorce. That discomfort you feel at the prospect of sharing your opinions on those things as a follower of Jesus, that's what the Bible would call the world. That's where that pressure is coming from. Essentially, any time that we feel a pull towards valuing the things that everybody else values or the discomfort we feel for not doing so, those things are the world at work. And this is important. If you don't ever feel any of those pressures or discomforts as as a follower of Jesus, one of two things is likely happening. Either you are fully sanctified already and therefore have no indwelling sin to speak of. Okay, spoiler alert, it's not that one. (laughs) Or it's because you have actually given in to the pull of the world already. It's because you don't actually perceive any substantial tension between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. Which is a problem because the biblical authors seem to more or less assume that we know about that tension. They often go out of their way to make sure that we understand those things are different. So let me just give you some examples from the Bible of what I mean. We'll put these up on the screen since we're going to move through them fairly quickly. First, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Now, just for clarity there, so you don't get the wrong idea, that's not saying that we shouldn't love the people in the world. 
John 3.16 makes it very clear that God himself loves the people in the world. What this is talking about is not loving the value system of the world, the, the priorities of the world. It's saying, don't make their priorities your priorities as a follower of Jesus. Then there's Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We tend to reference this verse a lot around here. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. John chapter 17, verse 14, Jesus speaking, says to the Father, I have given them, which in context is his disciples, followers of Jesus, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Their value system is not the same as the world's, and therefore the world tends not to like them a lot of the time. And then, just about as plain as, as it gets, in John 18, verse 36, Jesus says, point blank, my kingdom is not of this world. So we're noticing a theme in these passages. Jesus and the biblical authors firmly believe that there is a direct tension, probably more like an opposition, between the value system of the kingdom of God and the value system of the world. There is a noticeable, profound difference between the things that the world values and celebrates and the things that God values and celebrates. So just to name a few more so that we're getting a holistic picture of how this works. Uh, the world around us believes that sex is essentially play for grown-ups. It's for having with anyone and everyone you want, however you want to have it. God, on the other hand, believes that sex is a beautiful gift designed and intended for deepening a connection and intimacy between a husband and a wife in the context of a covenant marriage. Those are very different views of what sex is. The world believes that those who disagree with you ideologically and politically are your enemies, even sometimes our country's enemies which means, in their mind, that those people should be exposed and condemned and marginalized, perhaps even prosecuted accordingly. God, on the other hand, through Jesus, believes that you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those are two very different views of how we relate to our enemies. The world believes that your money and resources were given to you. I'm sorry, I skipped a part. The world believes that your money is yours, and therefore, you should use it however you want to use it, however you see fit. God believes, on the other hand, that your money and resources were given to you by God and therefore should be used how he sees fit to build the kingdom of God and to serve and bless others whenever you're able. Those are two very different ways to think about your money. And we could go on with different examples along those lines. We could talk about those differences for days. The point that I'm making is that the value system of the world is quite often light years away from the value system of Jesus. Now, that's not to say that the world is always what we would call secular. So there's a really interesting interaction that Jesus has in John chapter 8 between him and the Pharisees. There's this conversation that's going on, a little bit of a debate that's going on. And in that passage, at one point, Jesus says to the Pharisees, quote, you are of this world. Now, here's why that's interesting. The, the Pharisees were the religious elite of Jesus's day. 
They, they prided themselves even on, on being unpolluted and unstained and uninfluenced by the world around them. That was what they thought they were. And yet Jesus looks at them in John chapter 8 and says, no, you're worldly. You're of this world. That should be deeply alarming to us as Christians. Because that means that simply being deeply ingrained in a religious subculture does not guarantee that we are not being influenced by the world. I know people who are deeply religious, very involved in church, who would very much consider themselves men and women of faith, and yet still are deeply influenced and formed by the value system of this world. Uh, this, This is how pastors and deacons end up having secret affairs. Because even though they are deeply ingrained in a church culture, in a religious culture, they have been more formed by the way of the world than they have by the ways of Jesus. Because simply being a Christian does not prevent you from being influenced and co-opted by the world and its values. Which raises the question, how do we make sure we are not influenced by the world? I think it starts with an understanding of how the influence of the world works. So we've, we've got to gather our intelligence. If you were here last week, we've got to gather our intelligence for how the world works. So last week, we referenced this summary of the world, the flesh, and the devil from a guy named John Mark Colmer in a book that he wrote. We said that the problem, in a nutshell, how these three things work together is this. Deceitful ideas, which refers to the devil, that play to disordered desires, which refers to the flesh, which are normalized in a sinful society, which is his language for the world. So what is the strategy of the world? In a word, it's normalization. Normalization. The world will continuously normalize things that are not, in fact, normal. Things that are quite often opposed to and at odds with the way of Jesus. This often happens, I think, through our language, through the language that we use for different behaviors. So our our society will do this thing where they regularly sort of rebrand certain actions and behaviors in order to make them sound nobler than they are. So John Mark Comer, again, in his book, he lists out a handful of examples of how he has seen this happen. He says it this way. He says, in our culture, lust is redefined as love. Marriage, not as a covenant of lifelong fidelity, but as a contract for personal fulfillment. Divorce as an act of courage and authenticity rather than the breaking of vows. The objectification of women's sexuality through porn as female empowerment. Greed as a responsibility to shareholders. Gross injustice towards factory workers in the developing world as globalism. Environmental degradation as progress. The deracinization of once thriving local economies as free market capitalism. Racism as a past issue. Marxism as justice. Honestly, he says, I cannot think of a more gut-wrenching example than abortion where the greatest infanticide of human history is recast as reproductive justice. Okay, that's quite the list, right? And I fully realize there are some polarizing items on that list. Maybe all of the polarizing items. (laughs) And you may or may not agree with his assessment on every item on that list. But if you are thinking critically at all, if your eyes are open, if you are paying attention, I think you've got to acknowledge that he has a point. Things that were actually once crystal clear moral issues 
have been rebranded and repackaged so as to make them seem righteous as a result. British author Theo Hobson, he summarizes the phenomenon of the world like this. He says, what was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. And those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. This is the world at work. Now, the trick is that for followers of Jesus, normalization may or may not make us think immediately the exact same way as the world. It may just move us a few degrees in that direction over time. So, for instance, the world believes that there's nothing wrong at all with sleeping with anyone and everyone, no matter your connection or lack of connection to them. Most of us who are followers of Jesus, at least if we've been following Jesus for very long, we're not just going to wake up one day and all of a sudden buy into that wholesale narrative around sex. At least I hope not, right? But what we might do over time is just compromise little by little in that direction. We may just decide over time that if, if that's what the world does, well then surely it's not a big deal for me to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend, who I really love, I mean, after all, I'm way more committed to them than most people in the world are to the people that they're sleeping with. So we think to ourselves, well, I'm not doing that. I'm just doing this. So surely this must be okay if everybody else is doing that. Or pick most any other example. Consumerism and materialism, how we use our money, gossip, relationships, friendships, parenting. There are narratives in the world about how all of those things work. And even if the world can't get us to buy into the entire narrative, it can absolutely get us to overlook movement in that direction. And just to be honest, I think this has happened a lot with followers of Jesus in the 21st century. I think there are probably quite a few areas where we individually and collectively have strayed pretty far from the teachings of the scriptures and we've justified it by saying, well, at least we're not doing that. At least I don't treat people like that. At least I don't talk like that. At least I don't think about sex, money, possessions, morality like those people do. So I'm probably good over here. It's like some of us believe that God functionally grades on a curve. Like when we get to heaven, he's going to say, well, you did do a whole lot of stuff that I expressly said not to do. But you did better than the world around you. They're awful, so I'll give you a pass. I don't think that's the way following Jesus works. I think the biblical authors meant the stuff that they said. I think Jesus meant the stuff that he said. One of my favorite Christian authors right now has a series of books that he wrote just called, What If Jesus Was Serious? I love that language. What if Jesus was serious about the stuff that he said? What if he was serious about lust being as big of a problem as adultery? What if Jesus was serious about anger and self-righteous frustration being as big of a problem as murder? What if Jesus was serious about not storing up treasure on earth and instead giving to those in need? What if Jesus was serious about praying for those who persecute you and not just posting passive-aggressively about them on social media? What if Jesus was serious about the stuff that he said? Following Jesus means taking him at his word, 
even if some of the stuff he says is a complete 180 from the ways of this world. Okay, so now that we're aware of the strategy of the world, how do we resist the influence of the world? One thing that it's not is shutting ourselves off from the world. I think that's important. Jesus makes that clear at one point in the Gospel of John when he says that his prayer isn't that God would take us out of the world. Because if he did that, the world would never have any way to see the beauty of a life with Jesus. Instead, what we need to figure out as God's people is a way to live within the world without being formed by the world and its values. That's what we have to learn. So I've got three things for you here with an emphasis on the third one. We'll go through these one by one. First, I think to resist the influence of the world, we need a better story. A better story. So let's look one more time on the screen at that passage from Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So notice what Paul just said. He said the alternative to being conformed to the pattern of this world is to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Here's what I think he means there. In order to avoid being influenced by the world, you need to saturate your mind and imagination in a better story than the one the world offers. For followers of Jesus, I would argue that happens largely through our regular interaction with this book. Largely by regular interaction with the story of God laid out in the scriptures. This book is how we get to know the story that God has set us into as his people. Now, it's not the only way, right? We also need personal interaction with God through the Holy Spirit. We need community, which we'll touch on here in just a minute. We do need other means too, but it certainly isn't less than this, right? So I would just ask you as a follower of Jesus, what does your relationship look like with this book? Is there a desire in you to get into this story on a regular basis in your life. And I'll just add to that, is there a willingness to get into this book even on days when the desire is not there? I think that's just as important. I once heard a pastor say that if we do not know the scriptures, we will be perpetually enslaved to whatever sounds right in the moment. I think that's spot on. If you are not grounded in this story, this book, you are going to be drawn towards whatever story the world is currently telling you. So follower of Jesus, what does your interaction with this book look like? Because if you want to resist the story of the world, you need to familiarize yourself with a better story. And that's found in these pages. Second thing I think you'll need to resist the influence of the world is a better community. A better community. So look with me on screen at this passage from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. It says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So you hear the language of that passage. 
How do we make sure that none of us has, in his words, a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God? Which is just another way of saying, how do we make sure that we aren't overtaken by the pull towards the world? How do we make sure of that? In the words of Hebrews 3, according to what we just read, it's by, quote, encouraging one another daily. Hebrews just said that if you love and follow Jesus today, one essential way to make sure you are still loving and following Jesus in 10 years from now is to exist within a community of other followers of Jesus. A community that can encourage you, challenge you, prod you, point you towards what is good and true and right, who can remind you of and point you to that better story that we just talked about. That's how you make sure that you are still following Jesus in 10, 20, 50 years from now. Uh, I'll state it even stronger. I'll make you a bet. Those of you who right now would claim to know and follow Jesus, but you are doing it largely alone. Those of you who don't have deep, meaningful relationships with other followers of Jesus, those of you who aren't a part of a life group here at City Church or some other equivalent of that elsewhere, if you continue to operate in that way, I am willing to bet you that in 10 years you are not actively following Jesus, at least not in any accurate sense of that idea. That's how much I believe what Hebrews 3 just said. If you want to be sure that your heart is not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin over time, you will need what Hebrews 3 just said you need. And that cannot happen by just showing up here on Sundays. It can't. Hebrews says that you need that to happen, quote, as long as it is called today, which I don't know if you've noticed, is pretty much every single day. So, so this is why we say often around our church that if you are not part of a life group, you are missing at least half of what City Church is all about. You might be missing more than half of what following Jesus is about. Following Jesus was designed to happen in the context of community. End of sentence. Together with other followers of Jesus is where we learn to persevere in our faith. If you are not in a community like that and you are struggling to follow Jesus, you should not be surprised. This is how we learn to resist the pull towards being formed by the world around us. Community is where we learn to put on display the difference that Jesus makes in a human life. That's the context that God intended. Next one, which is arguably the most important, to resist the influence of the world, you will need a better ending. You'll need a better ending. Here's how we can ultimately endure against the power of the world, because we know as followers of Jesus how the story of the world ends. In John chapter 16, Jesus warns his disciples that things are about to get real dicey for them for a while. They're going to be kicked out of synagogues, he says. They're going to be hated, persecuted, ostracized, marginalized, you name it. Things are going to go pretty terrible for them for a while. And then Jesus says the strangest thing after warning them about all of that. He says, and I quote, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. I'm sorry, what? Jesus? Uh, how in the world would knowing any of those things lead to peace in me? Jesus explains it in the next verse. He says in John 16, verse 33, quote, in this world you will have trouble, but 
take heart for I have overcome the world. In this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. That's a promise. That's a guarantee from Jesus. And in context, Jesus doesn't just mean general trouble. He's not, he's not just talking about sickness or death or general frustration at your life. In context of John chapter 16, he's talking specifically about opposition from the world. Grief, persecution, marginalization, being looked down upon, judged and dismissed by people who don't share your values. People looking down their noses at you and concluding that you, because of your faith and your beliefs and your worldview, are in fact the problem with the world. In this world, Jesus says, you will have that kind of trouble. But, Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome that world. In the short term, Jesus says, you will be grieved by the, while the world rejoices. But in the long term, you will rejoice. At the cross, Jesus gave the ways of this world an expiration date. That world is passing away. First John chapter 2 says, The world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is the firm kind of hope that we stand on as God's people. We know how the story ends which gives us somewhere to point our grief in moments of trouble. It gives us something to do with all of that sorrow in the meantime. Namely, offer it up to the one who grieves with us, who has overcome the world for us. We overcome the world as God's people the same way that Jesus did through the cross. Because of the cross, you possess something that the world cannot take away. You hold in your hands something the world will never have, and that is permanent acceptance and security from the one who runs it all. Take heart, Jesus says, for he has overcome the world. It starts right there. And in order to realize these truths at a practical level, just like we've been talking about throughout this series, you will need to put it into practice. You'll need to put it into practice. So as we highlighted last week, the way that we change as human beings is through what we practice, not just what we hear, not just what we know, not even what we agree with, but with what we put into active, repetitive practice. So we told you last week that we put, to, we put together a practice guide for this series. It, it lays out three specific practices to help resist the three enemies that we are talking about each particular week. This week, as a way to resist the world, we have highlighted the practice of abstinence. Now let me explain. Some of you upon hearing that were like, I'm going to sit this one out, actually. Uh, this is not the same type of abstinence that was taught in your sixth grade PE class, okay? Different, different word, different idea than that. Although if you're single, you might want to try that one. Just a suggestion. But abstinence, the way that we are using it in this series, is actually a term that followers of Jesus have used for centuries and centuries to talk about any time that we choose to abstain from a set activity for a set length of time. 
That's the practice of abstinence. Often, some church traditions will advocate for this practice during the Lent season. You may, have hear, you may hear about people abstaining from soda or sweets or chocolate or alcohol or any number of other things during that particular season leading up to Easter. But for this series specifically at our church, we are suggesting that you abstain from some type of media. Now, here's why we say that. For most of us, our most regular exposure to the world comes from one of two places, usually both. First, our exposure to the world comes in the form of people in our lives that don't follow Jesus, right? So whether that's friends, family members, coworkers, classmates, neighbors, whoever it is. But to state the obvious, we cannot reasonably abstain from our relationships with people that don't know Jesus, right? Maybe we would like to, which is a different teaching for a different week, but we can't, or at least we shouldn't, right? According to Jesus, that would be what he calls going out of the world, which is expressly what he doesn't want us to do as God's people. So we can't abstain from people in our lives that don't know Jesus. But the second most frequent exposure that most of us have to the world is through various forms of media, so, so that could be streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, and the like. It could be cable TV. It could be cable news. It could be movies and theaters or at your house. For a lot of us, uh, it's probably social media, right? So it, it could be the music that you listen to. Believe it or not, most music has a message to it. The lyrics that you listen to on a regular basis operate out of certain worldviews and assumptions about life and relationships and sex and time and money and reality, among other things. So maybe it's music for you. Maybe for you, it's something more like books or audiobooks or podcasts, something along those lines. So I don't know for you what is the most regular, frequent interaction that you have with media, but chances are all of us have one, two, three forms of media that we gravitate towards most often, that we spend the most time on, on a regular basis. Uh, if you don't already know what you spend the most time on in terms of media, you might want to check the screen time feature on your phone. It'll probably be glad to tell you what the thing is that you spend the most time on. And listen, because our habits change us for the good and the bad, there is a pretty good chance that whatever your most regular exposure to media is, it is also one of the main things forming and conforming you over time to the value system of this world, whether you realize that's happening or not. Uh, th there is no way, for instance, to read, watch, and listen to barstool sports 10 hours a week and not be formed over time to think and act a certain way as a result, to value certain things as a result, to treat people a certain way as a result. Uh, there's no way to spend three hours a day on TikTok and not be formed to think a certain way as a result of that time. There's no way to listen to breakup songs on repeat all day, every day, and not think a certain way about relationships as a result. So the media that you consume and that I consume absolutely can and will conform us to a certain way of thinking and acting and believing and living. If you don't think that it will, think again. So our pitch to you as a way to resist the struggle towards the world, if that's something that is a particular issue for you personally, is to spend the next 30 days 
simply abstaining from whatever form of media that you interact with the most right now. For 30 days, simply omit that media contact from your life. So set an app restriction on your phone that you don't have the password to. Delete that app off your phone if you need to. Ask for accountability from someone in your life group. Whatever particular strategy you want to employ in order to implement this practice, just cut off the access that that particular outlet gets to your mind and your heart and your imagination. It's that simple. And then... If you really want to maximize this practice impact in your life, replace the time that you would have spent there on that form of media with something that actually forms your mind and heart in the direction of Jesus. Fill it up with time spent in the scriptures. Fill it up with a podcast about learning more about the Bible or learning how to follow Jesus or, or, or fill it up with time spent with other followers of Jesus face-to-face who can remind you of what's true and good in the world. And then see if, after 30 days of abstaining and filling that time with something better, see if after 30 days, your heart does not look and feel a little bit different as a result. I'd be willing to bet it does, even if it takes time. So with that plan in place, for the rest of this morning, what we're going to do is open the communion tables. We're going to remember as followers of Jesus the fact that Jesus has overcome the world through the cross that he's given us access to a better story, a better community, a better ending, and that through that we get to remember who Jesus is, we get to put those realities into practice in our life because the type of life that he offers is better than the type of life the world offers. One of those types of life is fading away, is passing away, the other one remains forever, in the words of 1 John chapter 2. So I invite you to celebrate with us, remember the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus as we ask him to make those realities more real to us in our mind and our heart and our imagination this morning. Let's pray.